0: you're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all here this morning. And again, like we often say, if this is your first time here, we are glad you're here. And we're glad you're here if this is where you always come. That's, that's awesome. Uh, we hope that you feel welcome here And uh, I would just invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of John. Gospel of John. And we're going to look again at chapter 14 this week. Uh, We have been going through the Gospel of John uh, for a number of weeks now. And in the most recent weeks, we have come to what... um, theologians or people who write commentaries people who use big words uh, would call the upper room discourse and all that really essentially means is that this is the the time when Jesus is or this is when John takes uh, a breather or he takes a few moments and like we said right at the very beginning when we started chapter 13, this is when everything really slows down. John encompassed three and a half years of Jesus's ministry in chapters 1 to 12. And then now, here in chapter 13, uh, and on to chapter 14, and 15, and 16, and and even 17, um, John is just going to give us a synopsis of what happens in not years, but actually hours, Uh, you know, 24 to 36 hours is, is what John is going to give us an account of. And so in, uh, in these moments, and uh, specifically in chapter 13 and 14, in this upper room discourse is the time when Jesus spends these, these private moments with his disciples, and they some place in Jerusalem, some unknown place in Jerusalem, in some unknown house in some unknown upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, Jesus shares a meal with his with his trusted confidants his his disciples, his students, his followers and uh, we as he is is talking with his disciples, he is sharing with him sharing with them some some words of Uh, exhortation, encouragement, advice, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. But, but he is trying to um, impart some, some wisdom. Um, And, and, and these are the final moments. These are the moments before Jesus will be taken and arrested and beaten and ultimately sent to the cross and so jesus uh, th- so these words that Jesus speaks are are weighty they're they're heavy they're important. Uh, all the things that Jesus says obviously are important, but uh, these are particu- of particular interest to not only his disciples that were there to hear them but also for us as we read them in the Gospel of John, to be able to just look and to see because Ultimately, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and I hope you are, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are His disciple, and so these words are not only meant for the for the uh, for the twelve, but they're also meant for you. So, in here in chapter fourteen, well, <clears throat> if we go back to thirteen, just to, by way of a reminder. You remember right at the beginning of chapter 13, we talked about how Jesus was, was telling us that uh, he wants us to serve. To, he, he was giving us the example of service when he washed the disciples' feet. And then, um, Pastor Matt, a couple of weeks ago, talked about later on in chapter 13 about how Jesus was telling people, telling his followers to, to love like he loves. And then last week, if you remember, we talked about how Jesus in, in the beginning, end of chapter 13, beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is talking about heaven. And essentially, so he's talking about service, he's talking about love, and then he's, and he's talking about where, um, where he wants us ultimately to go, to be with him. Um, and he was calling us to, to this idea of, of heaven and what it's going to be like and how he wants us to be there. Today, what we wanna do is we wanna continue on in chapter 14, and I just wanna look at three verses. Just three verses in chapter 14. They're kinda right there in the middle. And uh, we're gonna read verses 12, 13, and 14. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, take a look at John chapter 14, and we'll start at verse 12. Here's what it has to say. Truly, this is Jesus talking, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask of me anything in my name, I will do it. So today, what we want to talk about is just the idea of prayer. And Jesus is telling us that he wants us to pray uh, like he prays. He wants us to serve like he serves. He wants us to love like he loves. He wants us to go to where he's going. And now, here in chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, he wants us to pray like he prays. So let's do that together. Heavenly Father, it is our wish... It is our desire to know you better. And this morning, as we look into your word again, as we, all, as we always do, I pray that the things that we read, the things that we contemplate, the things that we think would be things that you are ministering to our hearts and to our minds. And Father, we pray that we would hear clearly what your spirit has to say to us this morning. Thank you, God, that you have communicated to us in this way. And, and thank you that we have the, the honor and, and the blessing uh, that we have the ability to communicate with you through means of prayer. And so guide our thoughts and our hearts this morning, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, prayer is one of those things that um, it's one of those things that I think almost everyone in the entire world who has ever lived has done at one point or another in his life. They have cried out for help to, and and for some, it's just a matter of you know just a, a reflex it's a matter of um not even knowing who you are crying out to um for others it's it's a matter of habit a matter of course it's um maybe you have prayed a prayer of desperation maybe you have prayed uh prayed a, a prayer of celebration um most people at some point in their lives they they will find themselves praying. Maybe not all, but most, I would say. But few people, uh, few people pray as a a matter of spiritual discipline. Now, what do we mean when we talk about spiritual discipline? Um, I would say, if you want a, a different definition, it would be simply just that Uh, a spiritual discipline is is merely a habit. Um, It is a practice. It is an experience that is designed specifically geared towards the Christian life. It is designed towards developing, growing, strengthening um, your spiritual muscles, I guess. It's like working out um, in the, uh, you know, when you go to a gym, you Well, I don't go to a gym, but um, some of us go to a gym. (coughs) When we talk about spiritual disciplines, what we're talking about are habits that are going to develop us, that are going to um, strengthen our spirit to build the muscle, so to speak, of one's character as a follower of Jesus Christ. Make sense? And so, for example, or for another example of a spiritual discipline, Bible reading would be a spiritual discipline. Bible study would be a spiritual discipline. When you take your Bible and you have your own quiet time, when you spend that time in the Word and you read, uh, you contemplate what you read there, that falls under the category of a spiritual discipline. And prayer is another one of those spiritual disciplines. Just like the word implies, uh, sorry, uh, just like the word implies, disciplines are, are the things that we do because we know we need to do them, right? It's not necessarily like we always want to do them. Sometimes we feel tired. Sometimes we feel uh, spent We're exhausted. Sometimes we feel like uh, we're too busy to pray, to read the Bible, to do those things. But we know we need to do them. We just don't feel like doing them. I mean, it's essentially like working out, right? Uh, Going to a gym. Exercising. It's the same thing in the spiritual realm. There's not always a sense of Uh, yippee I get to be disciplined in this area Uh, my dad was good at discipline it's something that we know we should do we know it's needful but we don't always feel like we need to do it but we have to and this is where the word discipline comes in we have to discipline ourselves to do what is important not what is convenient make sense I think it makes sense Here's, when we think specifically of the spiritual discipline of prayer, here's the basic definition of prayer, okay? Uh, There's different definitions out there. I think this one's simple enough. When we talk about prayer as a spiritual discipline, it simply means this, communing and connecting with God. That's what prayer is all about. It's communing and it is connecting with God. It's something, it's, it's sometimes talking to him. It is sometimes just being still and and listening to what God has to say. It, It can be audible. It can be internal. It can be in our hearts. It can be making requests for yourself. It can be interceding for other people. And I would say, too, that we need to be reminded that there is, there's no right way to prayer. Uh, to, to pray. The only wrong way to pray, I think, would be not to do it. That's, that's the long and the short of it. There's, there's no designated prayer position. You can pray standing, you can pray sitting, you can pray kneeling, you can pray with your uh, hands lifted up. Uh, you can close your eyes. You can keep your eyes open. You can pray on the run. You can pray at rest. You can pray in public. You can pray in private. You can pray in the morning. You can pray in the evening. You can pray at lunchtime. You can pray whenever. I remember once, uh, I shared a couple weeks ago when, when I was a camp director at Nestle Bible Camp. I remember this, uh, one of the guys there, his name was Jim McNee and he was uh, giving a, he was doing a devotional in the morning staff meeting, and then uh, afterwards he said, okay, now we're gonna pray. And uh, he said, I want everyone to, to pray uh, right now. And so everybody closed their eyes, and they're, and they're, you know, I don't know if they were pretending or they really were, but everybody was closing their eyes. He said, no, 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 I want everyone to pray, and I want you to all to pray out loud. And uh, And so we're, you know, this is like way out of our comfort zone, right? Um, And he said, keep your eyes open, just look around and just start praying. You know, pray for the stuff that you want to pray for but say it loud and say it proud, he said. And uh, I don't know if he said the proud part, but anyway, uh, so we all did that. It was chaos in the staff room there. We were like, we were just all praying. You couldn't hear anything. And, uh, and then, and then we finished, and Jim said, amen. And then he said, you know, we didn't understand anything that anybody was saying. We couldn't understand, but he said, God understands. He, all, he, he heard all those prayers. The point is, there's no right or wrong way to pray other than just maybe not to do it. But prayer is essential. It's a discipline. It's not something always that we maybe feel like doing or we're prone to do, but it is something that will help to develop our spiritual muscle. Prayer is important, and it is an important thing for us to understand to really get the concept of. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, it says this, Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. I've often wondered, what, what does that mean? Like, are we, are we supposed to be praying right now? Um, I think what Paul is just meaning is just that we have to have this attitude of constant prayer, to, to be in constant communication with God, to lift up our hearts to him. Whether it's praying for someone or whether it's praying for some need you have or or just prayer of thanksgiving or, or whatever it is, whatever it might be, we need to be in the constant attitude of, Of prayer. And so when we read these verses, specifically verses 13 and 14, when we read this and it says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So these are these are important words, but what does exactly Jesus mean here? I mean, people read these verses. Um, these are some of the most taken out of context verses in the entire Bible. I mean. Some people would read these verses and say, if anybody ask, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. They will say that Jesus is giving them a blank check. For those of you who still use checks. Um, does he really mean anything when he says anything? When he says, ask anything in my name and I will do it, you know what does it mean so for example if if we are a little low on cash, uh, can you pray that God will give you success in robbing a bank? Will he do that or if if a neighbor ticks you off, can you pray God please blow up his house uh, and God will do it. I mean, seriously, if you... But, but think about this. Don't laugh too hard about that because think about Luke chapter 9. Let me just summarize it for you. You don't need to turn there. Luke chapter 9, Jesus is walking around with his disciples. They're making their way up from, for their, from Galilee down to Jerusalem, okay? And uh, you know that in between Galilee and Jerusalem there's this big section called Samaria. We, we talk about the Samaria a lot, right? And we know that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. And so it was, it, it was a significant distance between Galilee and Jerusalem. And so they were going to have to stay uh, on their travel. They were going to have to find somewhere to bunk down. Um, and we know that this longstanding animosity between the Samaritans and Jews was... It, it, there was some serious prejudice there. Jesus and his disciples, they're making their way through Samaria and they're looking for some lodging. And they, so they go to one of the villages and the Samaritans essentially say, move on. You can't stay here. You're Jews. We, we don't want you here. And then in Luke nine fifty four, this is what the disciples say. When the disciples, James and John, son of thunder, uh, when they saw this, when they heard this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? Blow up their house. Uh, Lord, blow up their house, their home, blow up them up. Uh, we don't like what they're saying. That was their prayer. And, I mean... It doesn't say exactly what Jesus said to them, but I, don't, I just kind of imagine a withering stare. Um, and it says that Jesus replied, verse 55, with a rebuke. Um, my point is this. When Jesus says anything, it doesn't mean anything. Look at verse 13 again. I'm going to say it again. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the key part of the verse, right there at the end. Anything does not mean anything without the last part of verse 13. In light of what Jesus says here in verses 13 and 14 about prayer, let me give you, um, let me give you three things. Uh, three musts about prayer. Three things that, that prayer must have as a part of it. Here's the first one. Prayer must be glorifying to God. It must be glorifying to God. And we just read there in verse 13, let me just read it again because it's an awesome verse. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the request of James and John in Luke chapter nine did not bring glory to to the Father in any way, shape, or form. And thus, God did not grant them whatever they asked. It's qualified here. There's a qualifier in what Jesus says. God will only do for us what adds to his glory. Not your glory, God's glory. And there's a massive difference there, right? Of course there is. God will never do for us anything that is going to detract or take away from his glory. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8 says this, Jesus, or God is speaking here and he says, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give to another. So the point is this, when we pray, we better glorify God because you don't want to mess with God's glory. Acts chapter 12. The situation in Acts chapter 12 involves Herod, King of, uh, Herod Agrippa, he's king over Judea, or at least he's a placeholder. It tells us that on that occasion in Acts chapter 12, he went out to the people to give a public address. And he was adorned in these fine robes and shining royal garments. And as he spoke, the people in Acts chapter 12 that saw him and heard him speak said this, this is the voice of a God, not of man. And they ascribed deity to King Herod Agrippa. And Herod didn't do anything to correct it. He just drunk it all in. I I don't know what was going on in his mind. Well, I didn't want to say anything, but uh, yeah, I think you, you might be right. Acts chapter 12, verse 23 says, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Not a good way to go out. Here's the point. The point is sometimes our prayers are full of selfish ambition, and they do not glorify God. Why would we think that God would answer any of those prayers. When we pray things like, Lord, make me successful and famous. Is God obligated to do that? I don't think so. But on the other hand, if we were to pray something like this, Lord, would you open doors for me and would you give me a platform so that I can make your name famous? Do you see the difference? The prayer is focused on God, not on us. God will give you success as long as you give him the glory. And when we don't, he won't. That's the way it works. Or at least I think so anyway. So when Jesus says here, ask whatever you want, he he puts in that qualifier and he says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So make sure that your prayers, the point is, it must, must glorify God. Make sure your prayers glorify God. And make sure that your prayers are not self-centered, Christ-centered. Things that would bring glory and honor to his name. Now, I, I, I am not for a moment saying that we cannot make our request known to God. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we have to check our motives. It's so important. Because don't we want our lives to mirror that of the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't we want, don't we want to, to be pursuing Christ-likeness? Don't we want to reflect God to this world? Our prayers must be glorifying the God. Here's the number two. Number two says, uh, it would be this. When we pray, it must, must be in accordance with God's will. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says this. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So, I mean, I'm sure that everyone who has prayed at some point in their life, you have said something, Lord, if it be your will. Uh, we 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 add that onto our prayers because we want to just make sure that we're we're good, you know, like we're not being selfish. No, nope, God, it's going to be Your will. And and honestly, there are some people that would say that if you add that to your prayer, if you say, Lord, if it be Your will, and then you make your request, or if you say, you know, you, you just lay it all out for God, and then you say, if it be Your will, uh, you know, like you end or, or you begin your prayer with this this idea of it being God's will. Some people. I hate that phrase, but I say it all the time. I know I do. Uh, But there are some people who, um, who would say that if you use that phrase, you have no faith. They're saying that you're not really praying in faith. You're not really praying with the confidence or the boldness that is needed to declare what God's will is. They will say, you don't don't say, if it be your will. You say, Lord, this is your will. And you declare that will. And and they'll say, No, you, you don't, you don't put qualifiers in there. You don't say if. They'd say you're not showing confidence if you don't declare what God's will is. But I think that is so backwards. And not only do I think it's backwards, but I think it's dangerous. If you go around and you declare you are telling God what His will is, what is that? That's pride. That's arrogance. That's not confidence. Don't you think it would be better to defer to the will of God than to declare what it is? Uh, Here's the example. (coughs) It's a good example in Scripture, and it's just a couple chapters later. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about Jesus praying to his Father. What does he say? Do you remember? Um. He prays in Luke 17, and then later on it's recorded, Luke chapter 22, verse 42, it says, Jesus prayed, Luke Luke recorded that Jesus said this, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me, this cup of suffering. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's saying in essence here, if there's any other way to accomplish this plan of redemption without my having to suffer on the cross, that would be my preference. But it's really not about my preference, Father. It's about your will. And he deferred. He deferred. He didn't declare. He deferred to the will of his Father in heaven. And in the same way, uh, uh, earlier on in his ministry Matthew chapter 6 the disciple said Lord how should we pray and remember what he said part of the Lord's prayer we commonly we, we pray it all the time or we know how it goes but what does it say your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven what is Jesus teaching us here He's saying, defer to the will of the Father. He's saying, may the will of the Father be done. And, I mean, these are so, um, these these are touchy subjects. And and these are, I would say, incredibly hard things to to grasp, to understand. I mean, these are ambiguities that, that we can't even, Kind of wrap our minds around when we talk about the will of God, and there are but there are some things clearly in Scripture where God makes His will known. Uh, for ex, for some of the things you know that you can pray because you know that it is in alignment with the will of God. You know what I mean? There are some things that we can pray that we know. This right here, this is the will of the Father. First Peter. Uh, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. So I know, unequivocally, I know that it is God's will for me to pray for the salvation of my friends and for my family. And I can say definitively that this is God's will. He wants as many people to be saved as possible. He is not willing that any should perish. Now, my, my, my family and my friends may not choose to be saved, but nevertheless, I am praying in accordance with the will of God that they should be saved or that they might be saved because I know that that's the will of God. The, the Bible tells us this. He makes it clear in Scripture But there are a whole host, on the flip side of this, there's a whole host of things that you and I are going to encounter in the course of our life that we don't necessarily know exactly what the will of God is. I mean, we are going to wrestle with questions like Should I take that job? Should I marry that person? Should I buy that house? Should I move to Hawaii? I believe that to be God's will. Um, Not stating. I'm just, I'm deferring. Um, Don't we trust God enough to lead us in the right direction? I mean, oftentimes when we don't understand the will of God, it's when we're out of step with the Lord Jesus Christ when there are things that are in the way. Don't go around declaring. It only leads to trouble, I think. This is my preference, Lord. Hawaii, it's my preference. But if it's not your will, make it clear to me make it crystal clear, because I don't want to be out of step with you, Lord. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this, that you, you are a human being, and God bless you, you are flawed, and, and I am flawed. It's just the way we, we were born into sin. We, we are not perfect, we are flawed, imperfect, and we don't always know what God's will is because we are not God. So we pray, Lord, your will be done. And it's okay, as Jesus modeled for us in the garden, to make your request known, it's totally okay. Say, Lord, this is my preference. This is, this is what I want. This is what I would like. But in the end, Lord, your will be done. I trust you to know better than me. If my will is not your will, God, I take it away. Take that desire away. I, I, I'm in, if my will is not God's will, then, man, I'm in trouble. God's will is always best for us. If we rest in the character of God and we understand that he is the father in heaven who loves us and always wants the best for us, then we won't have to settle for anything less. Even if it's not getting what we wanted, because in the long run, what God wants is always better than what I want. And so we have to pray in accordance with his will. We must and, and then we must have the, the, the trust in God to, to just surrender to that. A guy by the name of uh, E. Stanley Jones said this, said, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and, cor- and cooperation with that will. And then he said this, <coughs> if I throw out a boat hook from my boat and I catch hold of the shore and pull, do I, sh- do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to God. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything in his name, according to his will, he hears us. Or he will correct us. Number three, must glorify God, must be in accordance with his will. Here's the last one. It must be asked with the right motives. It must be asked with the right motives. Um, when you pray, we have to have The right motivation. Here let me let me read to you James chapter four. Verses two and three. (coughs) James four, two and three says this you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you cover up and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pat on your passions. The NIV there um, says that you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Context is important. Everything in the Bible uh, should be in context. We, We know that. We've said that. But if you read just that, you know, that verse or you know, those verses without reading the verses that surround it, you might not get the full context of what is happening. James is talking about conflict. He's talking about conflict that people are having with one another. They're not being Christ-like. And so verse (coughs) 1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. And then he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he says this, verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what James is saying here is that we don't receive from God because we don't bother to ask. That's one thing. That's one important thing. But the other thing that James is saying here is that when you pray, you don't receive because you, you are asking with the wrong motives. Your motivation is totally, totally wrong. And when you look at the verses around it, James is basically saying this. He's saying, if you're living and you're acting like the world, don't expect God to answer your prayers so you can continue to act and live like the world is living. That's what James is saying. He's saying as Christians, we need to be separate from the world. We're not to isolate ourselves, not to close ourselves off from the rest of the world. That's not what James is saying. But we need to continue, we, we need to continue to be relevant to the world. We need to continue to engage the world because the world needs Jesus. But I'm talking about living and behaving in a way that honors Christ instead of just living and behaving like the rest of the world does. Because James says here the reason why we're not receiving answers when our our prayers seem to be bouncing off the ceiling is because we're expecting God to bless a lifestyle that we should have left. We're asking God for things that are going to simply bless a worldly way of living. And then in, in James, in, in the next chapter, in, in James Epistle, in ver, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, it says this. <coughs> the effective, fervent prayer of, an, of a righteous man or woman avails much. Uh, the NIV, I, I really like the way the NIV says it. It says that the prayer of a righteous man avails, uh, is, is powerful and effective. So in other words, the righteous person in Jesus who prays will receive because you're praying with the right motives instead of the wrong motives. Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your father who is in a secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like him, do not like, be like them, for your father knows the thing that you have need of even before you ask it. That's how he wants us to pray. A guy by the name of J. Edwin Orr said this, when one prays in a meeting for his first three minutes, everyone prays with him. Should he continue a second three minutes, everybody prays for him. And should he continue for a third three minutes, uh, a further three minutes, the others start to pray against him. Oswald Chambers said this about prayer. We tend to use prayers as a last resort, but God wants us, wants us to, wants it to be our first line of defense. When we pray, we pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. I'm sure you've heard this or read this at some point in, in your life, but I, I want to close with this. Uh, there's a prayer that was found in the 1800s and actually at the Battle of Gettysburg in the pocket of a Confederate soldier who had died on the battlefield. And this is the prayer that was written on the piece of paper that was found in his coat. I asked God for strength that I might achieve I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men and I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for but everything that I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Prayer must be glorifying to God. It must be in accordance with God's will. And it must be prayed with the right motives. Romans chapter 12, verse 12 says this. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your attention. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. And I pray, God, that today we would be in step with you and that we would be in constant communication, communing and connecting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.